Meredith. We've been talking about the prophetic hope of Israel, otherwise known as the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, for the last couple weeks, dare I say months, here at the Blue Point Bible Church. This is important because the Apostle Paul makes it adamantly clear that he preached nothing else. And when he says nothing else, he means on Mother's Day, on Easter, on Christmas, on every holiday. Again, the Apostle Paul didn't celebrate these holidays. However, on every holiday that happened in in Israel, he preached one thing. One thing and one thing only. The hope of Israel. That which is found in the Law and the Prophets. He says it. You can look it up, Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. I preach nothing else other than the hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, that is found in the law and the prophets. The Apostle Paul's words. As I honestly prayed and studied through some thoughts on what to preach about this morning, Mother's Day, I wondered, if ancient Israel or Old Covenant Israel celebrated and understood our modern concept of Mother's Day, what would their message be in their their synagogue on a Sabbath? If Mother's Day was on a Sabbath, which, again, Sundays are Christian Sabbath, if they were talking about this in a synagogue, what would they talk about? How would they highlight the truth of mothers, all the while knowing the hope of Israel is found in the Law and the Prophets? What would they preach about? What would they talk about? Real quickly, I'm going to give you some details on our modern concept of Mother's Day, according to Wikipedia. The modern holiday of Mother's Day was celebrated in 1908, when Anna Jarvis held a memorial for her mother at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. St. Andrew's Methodist Church now holds international, the International Mother's Day Shrine. Her campaign to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday in the United States began in 1905, the year her mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, died. Anne Jarvis had been a peace activist who cared for wounded soldiers on both sides of the American Civil War and created Mother's Day work clubs to address public health issues. And Anna Jarvis wanted to honor her mother by continuing the work she started and to set aside a day to honor all mothers because she believed that they were the people who were doing more than anyone else in the world, the mothers. I think that's a beautiful reason to celebrate a holiday. If you know anything about me, actually I said this the other night, um, as we talk about throwing youth parties every month at our church, I believe everything should be celebrated. I believe we should have a holiday every day for something new. You know, if you, you received a good grade on a class project, we should throw a party and celebrate. If mothers are doing their job walking worthy of the call of motherhood in our society, we should throw a party and celebrate. And therefore, for me, Mother's Day makes perfect sense. I say, of course we would have a day that we sit back and we say, all that mothers do throughout the year, we're going to celebrate and we're going to throw a party. Sorry, no party here today, but... Preferably, my message is a gift. So, and I believe the Apostle Paul would agree with me here. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to, I believe that scriptures will deal with this and it will highlight the same truths. I believe the hope of Israel highlights the need to celebrate mothers. And I'm going to show you that this morning. In his second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, the Apostle Paul highlights and commends the sincere faith expressed through, expressed through Timothy's mother and his grandmother his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois. You see this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. So as I read that, I wondered, what sort, of, what sort of thoughts, stories, and concepts about God or concepts about the hope of Israel did these women think and know to maintain such a sincere hope? What was their example? What went before them to establish them as 
a godly mother and a godly grandmother. What was it about the hope of Israel, if indeed the Law and the Prophets preached nothing other than the hope of Israel? What was it about those writings, those prophets, their hope, that built them up to be such strong women that would pass on a sincere faith to a child and a grandchild? That's where I believe a story would start in a synagogue. How how did these women become such great examples of the faith? And how can we further instill that in mothers and fathers for all eternity? Again, because the hope of Israel fulfilled is the healing of the nations. So how do we understand the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel fulfilled, and how that creates a sincere faith in mothers and in grandmothers? And how does that work to heal our nation? Interesting message, right? I, I thought all of this works together. I believe we do justice to the gospel, which the Apostle Paul said was the hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, by allowing our celebration of motherhood to flow from the spiritual truths of the gospel. That's where it must come from. What motherhood is must be exemplified and highlighted by the gospel. So this morning I'm going to call my message Motherhood and Resurrection. We're going to talk about motherhood and resurrection. As we have been surveying the prophets of Israel and what they said about their hope, I pray that it has become very clear to each and every one of us that the prophets hoped for what we're calling a corporate conceptual reality. Corporate meaning a group of people. They hoped for their group. Their hope wasn't for you as a person. Their hope was for us as a people. Right? We call it the glorified body of Christ. That's the hope fulfilled. The resurrected body. Conceptual means that it takes place in your mind. Again, um, conceptual is an idea. So what I'm going to tell you is that the hope of Israel fulfilled also brought about a mental reality. Again, if you're in the body of Christ and you've experienced salvation, you know that reality. You know that conceptual reality that has been given to us by God. That now when we think, we can, the author and finisher of our faith, we can think through those things. And that's how we begin to see healing in our world, in our lives, dare I say, in our minds and our hearts. The prophets desired that their people would be raised up, or to use the Greek term, to be made to stand upright. Right? It's not, is it apontesis or is it, uh, there's another word. I mentioned them last week. Nobody's picking up on the Greek around here. Um, you know, there's two words for resurrection, ap- apontesis and uh, anastasis. Ah, so you just rely on the Lord. He'll give you the words. So, anastasis. Now, the word used to stand upright is anastasis. That's the word for resurrection. Okay, so when we're talking about resurrection, we're talking about standing upright. You picture a dead man laying down, and then the resurrection is making him stand upright. When we read through the Old Testament of our Bible, we read through the Law and the Prophets, the story that you should pick up is that Israel is dead. God's body that he's using to bless the world for some reason is laying on the ground doing nothing, not walking worthy of their call. So what is God going to do? He needs to breathe life into them to get them to stand upright. His people, that's the hope. What, how will God make us, his people, stand upright? How will he raise the dead? That was the question throughout the Law and the Prophets. Ultimately, the reality, this would be the reality that Adam and Eve enjoyed. The resurrected reality is the, the privilege of being in the Garden of Eden, eating of the Tree of Life, experiencing God's presence, knowing that I don't have to feel shame in the presence of God, that he looks at me as somebody that has been risen from the dead, You don't look at somebody that's been risen from the dead in a bad way, right? You say, wow, you have life. You're alive. 
That's what, we, that's what the hope of Israel was, to be ter- given the reality that Adam and Eve had, that beautiful garden. You know, again, I, I'm sure, you know, we, here we go, we got a garden. Um, you know, let, allow this to conjure up an image. When you look at flowers and you smell flowers and you, you see a beautiful garden set before you, again, you understand joy, peace, you know, uh, serenity. These are the things that come out of this type of environment. So when we're t- thinking of resurrection of the dead, we're thinking of Adam and Eve. The reality that we should be thinking of is that garden scene, a place of serenity, a place of peace, a place of joy. And that's what, where God wants us. That's what, exactly where God wants us as a people, is to be in his presence, to find joy in his presence. The prophets conveyed this as a reality of being naked and unashamed. Again, just being able to stand in the presence of God and being happy with that presence. The understanding I have come to defend and promote is referred to as the corporate or collective body view. And that means that the resurrection of the dead is not talking about a reality you will one day experience. It's talking about the reality we now know in the body of Christ. The salvation, the serenity, the peace and joy that we can come to by building on the faith of each other, by knowing one another, and by allowing that to influence us in our relationship with God. To allow, allowing us to see that we are in the garden. We've been restored to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. While I do not intend to get into all the specifics this morning, I do pray to clarify a bit about the resurrection of the dead. You could go back and listen to our sermons on our website and or look forward to my upcoming exchange with Mr. Ed Stevens in regards to the resurrection. Namely, that I'll be disagreeing with his view that the resurrection of the dead is talking about an individual bodily reality that we will one day all take part in. As a corporate body proponent, I challenge that the gospel hope is revealed through all scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what I usually refer to as the biblical narrative. This is a corporate hope of being brought into the presence of God, something we enjoy when we die to our identities, our flesh outside of Christ. We die to that, and we find unity, peace, serenity, joy in the body of Christ. Amen? You following me? You agree with me? All right. So what I intend to do with our message this morning is to bring us to one of the prophets, the prophet Samuel. I'm going to bring you to the prophet Samuel, but we're going to talk about something a little bit different this morning. We're going to talk about his mother. Fitting, right? So we'll talk about Hannah this morning. And uh, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 1. That's If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be page 282. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, so I'm going to read through the details. So if you do want to turn with me, please. Again, our goal is going to be if Hannah is the mother of a prophet and she's going to raise up a prophet, I imagine she would have known the hope of Israel. It seems self-explanatory. She's going to be the one that's going. She actually hoped for. She prayed for Samuel. She wanted this son to be given to her so bad. I'm going to bring you into the context before I get into the details of her prayer because what you're going to see this morning is her prayer highlights the hope of Israel. And I'm going to challenge you this morning to look at her prayer and say, is that the gospel that I've been hoping in, that I've been living by, that I've been hearing? You know, if you listen to David Jeremiah this morning, is this the gospel he preached this morning to you? Because you're going to see, again, if the law and the prophets, Samuel's part of the law and the prophets, this is where the hope must be found. This is where the gospel must be found. I preach nothing other than the hope of Israel that is revealed in the law and the prophets. This is it. This is where we're going. Right to the text. Okay? So let's go. Now there was a certain man, beginning with verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramath Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was 
Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from the city year to year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting at, at the, on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away wine. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of great concern and provocation. Then Eli said to her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to her house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked of him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him up, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So again, there's a whole message in, in all of that right there. You know, again, a faithful woman, a woman that goes up to the presence of God, seeks the Lord, knows that... If I desire something and I go to the Lord and I, I make myself available to him, I make my petitions known to him, I will find favor in his sight and he will bless me. You know, right there, that's a Mother's Day message. I could just say, 
Learn from that. Go home. Be a woman that seeks the Lord, knows that if you seek the Lord, you will find favor. But seek the Lord. To me, that's a beautiful text, beautiful reality. However, what I want to focus us on is I want us to look at now how Hannah responds. Because, again, important concept here. It's the ancient world. Um, it's interesting to know that it's in Ephraim, which is the north of Israel. And, you know, again, we know that this area was plagued by idolatry, that most likely that's, uh, the Lord is about to do something here. A lot of times when you see closed wombs in Scripture, and all of a sudden they're opened, you know the Lord is about to do a work. That's, what, that's what's happening here. God is definitely about to do a work. Um, you know, again, you can follow the, the narrative of what Samuel did in that culture. Ultimately, the prophet Samuel is he who anointed David. He called David. So Samuel's used by God in a mighty way. Now, I, again, there's just so much right there. You, you could stop right there with Hannah's story and say, so wait a minute. If there's something going on in our society and we have faithful women who will begin to consult the Lord and find favor with the Lord, you're saying God could do something great through that? Amen. Did we catch that? If we find problems in our society and we find women, we build up women to be faithful women who will seek the Lord, what we're saying is that God can provide favor and God will heal our land through that. I believe that. Hmm. So, again, there's a message in and of that. It's not on my notes. Um, so, now what I want us to do is focus on how Hannah responds to this. She gets given a son. That's all that happens here. Very natural. Let's just look at it in the natural she seeks God. She asks for favor. Again, in that culture, something important to back up and know is that when you didn't have children in that culture, again, it was viewed as a curse. So here, imagine how Hannah feels when this penina keeps coming to her, reminding her, you know, here are my children, you know, and where are your kids? So you can almost understand the, the tension there. And here's a woman that she doesn't appear to be a wicked woman, doesn't appear that she's being judged. However, it seems that uh, there's something to be learned here, and I'm just going to kind of go off track to say something. Job knows this. In my spirituality stuff that we're talking through in our thinking through Scripture, Job knew that when bad things happen, that doesn't mean that God hates me. That means that God gives and God takes away. It says Job's response to his wife when she tells him to curse God and die, he says, what, we expect that we're just going to have good and no evil? That God wouldn't provide, God's just going to provide good and there's no evil to come upon our land? No, of course all these things. We have to appreciate both. God gives and God takes away. There's good and there's bad. So I imagine that Hannah, she stuck to her faith here. She knew no. I'm not, it's not that I have no children that I'm a wicked woman. Because again, notice how she answered Eli. I'm not a worthless woman. Right? What is that? Verse, uh, verse 16. One, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. For I have spoken until now out of great concern and provocation. She knew that she wasn't being judged by God and not given children because she was, you know, doing something wrong. She knew that I have trust in God. God has his reasoning. And again, I, I highlighted, this is a time of idolatry. God is about to do a work. When you see a closed womb and God opens that womb, it means he's doing a work. He's doing something mighty in that land. So now let's take a look at Hannah's prayer. Let's see how she turns back and praises God for what he just did. He gave her a child. That's what he did. He answered her prayer. She found favor. And listen to her response. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. 
The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will, ju- will, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. She left Samuel there at the temple. Notice how Hannah responds. Hannah clearly had a corporate hope. Again, God gives you a child. What are your prayers going to sound like? You know, uh, thank you, God, for giving me a child. Thank you for blessing me so that Peninnah can't seem like she's doing better than me. Thank you for allowing me to see that my understanding of you is faithful because, again, she knew she wasn't a worthless woman. She knew she was seeking God, that she should find favor. She should be blessed. Her prayer was hardly selfish, hardly focused on herself. What did she do? She turned back. She praised God for all that he's done, the gospel. She lifted up God for the gospel. I just want you to notice a couple things she mentioned. My mouth boasts over my enemies and deliverance. Again, if you read through all the law and the prophets, that's the law. That's the hope of Israel, that we would boast over our enemies and that we would be delivered. That was the hope of Israel. You go through, if you've been following along, we went through Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah chapter 3, the gathering that he hoped for. And if you remember, that gathering didn't happen until the enemies were judged. If you remember Joel chapter 2, when we were doing our Sunday school uh, discourse on the Holy Spirit, you remember before that time of restoration would come, what would have to happen? Judgment on the enemies of the people of God. You go to Hosea, you read about the judgment on the people of God before the restoration is going to happen. Hannah knew this story because Hannah had, and I'm going to explain this a little bit more as I close, Hannah had a a true conceptual understanding of God. She truly knew God's will. She knew the hope of Israel. She knew the gospel. She knew what they longed for. And it, it hardly was something individual. It hardly was this. She didn't focus on just God giving her a son. She lifts up praise that He's given me deliverance from my enemies. He's given me, he's judged my enemies. He, he feeds the hungry. He takes the barren and gives them abundance. Verse 5, he resurrects, right? He kills, he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. She sees the corporate hope. One of the things that stood out to me in the text was she says, there is no one like you, O Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. You see, it's all corporate. Hannah wasn't caught up in the, the, the uh, idolatry of self that seems to pervade our culture. Hannah knew the corporate culture. She knew what they were hoping for as a people, that Samuel is just a, a part of the process. Her being blessed with the favor of God is a part of what God is about to do. It wasn't, look at me, now I have a child, thank you God, time to go home and go to Ramah. No, she actually leaves her son there, which is another whole other issue that she she leaves her son there in the presence of God because she knows what's happening she knows that there's a bigger story than just her prayer that she would be given a son so she could look at Penan and say look God loves me too she knew there was something bigger than that she knew there was something bigger than dying and getting a new body so we could say look at us 
Actually, there's a corporate hope. There's a bodily hope. These people are going to be restored. And Samuel was a part of that process. That's why she turned back and praised God the way she did. She points out he humbles and exalts. She pointed out that God will bring judgment. And then the last two verses of uh, 10 and 11, actually verse 10, really stood out to me. She said, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. Every time we talk about the resurrection of the dead, you're talking about the kingdom of God. Every single time. Matter of fact, in my debate or my exchange, uh, my exchange coming up uh, in, in the next couple months, one of the texts we have to deal with is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, where it talks about the kingdom of God. The first thing that it begins to talk about in regards to the resurrection of the dead, the hope of Israel, is the coming of the kingdom of God. That is the resurrection of the dead. The dead are raised by being brought out of the muck of the world and being brought into the salvation, the deliverance of the kingdom of God. And a lot of that was, all of that was beginning with Samuel the prophet. Hannah knew this hope. That he would give strength to his king and anoint and exalt his anointed. Again, we, hopefully everybody in the room knows that's pointing to Jesus. There's your messianic promise right there. Samuel's a part of that process to lead to the Messiah. So, what is my point this morning? Other prophets spoke of these things. And I want to posit to you that Hannah's spirituality, the way she turns back and praises God, this isn't built upon her own understanding of God blessing her or anything like that. This is built upon her being a part of a culture that had the truth of God. It was fostered by an understanding of God. Again, look how she praises him. She knows him. But, well, first off, let's face it. She knew him because she was seeking him in the first place. She knew God. She understood his will. She understood that he's a God that doesn't allow his people to feel as though they're dwelling in the dust. Catch that this morning. She knew that the one true God is not a God that allows his people to feel as though they're dwelling in the dust. And if you remember, after Adam and Eve, right, the sin, the Garden of Eden, Israel's identity, how they understood their identity as a people, was that they were dwelling in death and dust. That unfortunately, God had given them a covering so they were a little bit better than the nations because the nations were completely dead and in the dust. However, God gave them a covering but they still felt as though they were a people dwelling in the dust. And that's why Hannah's praise, when God shows her favor, her praise is, he's the God of resurrection. This is the God that finds favor with his people, wants his people to be raised up, wants his people to have hope. Because again, I imagine Hannah could have just sat there and sulked and felt that maybe this is the will of God. You know, what's really important is to understand how these people in this time would have worked. They're... The way they thought about the gods, again, the surrounding culture were gods, not God. The way that these people thought about gods was that the gods hated humanity. The God, man is just here to serve creation. And if man walks worthy of taking every flower and bringing it before the god of flowers and, you know, presents it to him and that god finds favor with him, then man might be blessed. Might be. Whereas the one true God, if you read the story of scripture and you get to know the one true God, our God doesn't look at us like that. Starting with Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we see that God, our God sets us up as a, a people that will be in his presence, a people that will flourish in the presence of God if we're obedient to his will. So Hannah understood this. Hannah understood this concept. That's very important to know, by the way, that the Hebrew God, the one true God, he displays favor with his people. He displays a concept of resurrection, that he will not let you dwell in the dust. Whereas all the other ancient Near Eastern myths and lies about the gods... They believed that man was disgusting, dirty, and meant for the dust. 
And if man is ever taken out of the dust, that's because the gods found favor with him and allowed him to be taken out of that. Whereas the conceptual reality that the Hebrew people brought about was that, no, God loves us, that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. That's the conceptual reality that Hannah had. She had an understanding of God that, no, God does not want me to sit here feeling as though I'm going to be beat up by my adversary Peninnah because she has many more children than me. Matter of fact, if you notice what she says in her praise, she says, it's not that long of a text. She basically speaks against uh, those that have many children against those that have none. That, you know, she who has many children will be seen as broken, whereas she who has none will be given abundance. Again, the God of resurrection. A God that would not want you to feel as though you're broken down, defeated, and stuck in the dust. Hannah understood the one true God always wants to lift us up, always wants to give us hope. And that's the type of people Israel were. Israel, in contrast to the nations around them, were a people that had an understanding of God that he gave them concepts to lift them from the dust, that he created them as the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis chapters 1 through 3. That he always was doing something. He was always at work in their world to give them a better reality than what they were currently experiencing. He was always at work. What we, that's what the concept of resurrection is. The concept of resurrection is that if you find yourself dead, know that one day life will come. That's what Israel longed for. They knew that if we hold on to the concept we have about God, one day resurrection will come. One day a new reality, or to use Psalms, a new day. This is the day that the Lord has made. They knew that that would one day be fulfilled. The concept of resurrection is that God is faithful, that he restores his people, and his whole purpose is to have man standing upright in his presence. Man standing upright, making him known to the nations around him. A corporate hope. You know, having such an understanding of God is a gift. It's a gift. The hope of resurrection and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ is a gift. And as I thought about this and I said, we have a story of a mother who held to this gift, this hope, in such a way that she was able to not only teach it to her child, and then as you move on through the story, you know, we get to the time of Timothy. It was, you know, it was the mothers that were teaching the children in those times, the mothers that were instilling these details in their children. The fathers, again, had a role to teach, but the mothers were doing the instilling in the, in the caring, the concern, in the ways that only a mother can. Again, I know each and every one of us have a mother, and we know that gift. We know the gift of a mother. We know the gift of what motherhood could bring. Maybe it's not our biological mother. Maybe it was somebody else outside of our family. But we know the gift of motherhood. And if we don't, the good news is we could turn to a God of resurrection. We could turn to a God who will be both mother, father, whatever you might need. He will be that. And that's something important for all of us to know. That he is a God that believes in resurrection. What I'm going to pray as we close out this morning, and I invite you all to come up and Receive some gifts here. Uh, not all of you, actually. Um, so uh, I invite some of you. I invite the mothers to come up and collect flowers. I'm going to pray that we would have more mothers like Hannah. We would have more mothers that would know their hope, cling to their hope, that will have more mothers that would be like Eunice and Lois, uh, like, that would raise up men like Timothy, and that we would have mothers of hope, mothers that would look at the world that's what I mean when I say mothers like Hannah, by the way, is mothers that would look at the world and would say, well, that's not the will of God. The will of God is that he would find favor with us and that he raises the dead. That's the hope that we're called to have as a people. We are a people that are marked by resurrection. 
We're a people that know that God has, favor, has his favor toward us, that he desires for us to be standing upright in his presence, never to feel as though we're dwelling in the dust. That's our gospel. That's our message. We need mothers to be raised up to teach more children. That way we can see the healing of the nations. Amen? All right. Well, at this time, I'm going to begin to invite mothers to come forward. And please take a flower as a gift from Blue Point Bible Church. And also, with taking of a flower, I'll give you a paper towel because there's a little bit of dirt on the bottom. We don't want you to dwell in the dirt. Could have give you a bigger one, sorry. Actually, the names are on the side, so you can look if you'd like. Well, now that uh, everybody's returned to their seats, I do want to lift up a prayer for the mothers that are here and uh, the mothers that are not able to be with us, um, those that maybe we're cherishing in our minds and our hearts. Join me in prayer. To the moms who are, to the moms who are struggling, to those filled with incandescent joy, to the moms who are remembering children who have died and pregnancies that miscarried, to the moms who decided other parents were the best choice for their babies, to the moms who adopted those kids and loved them fierce, to those experiencing frustration or desperation in an infertility, to those who knew they never wanted kids and the ways they have contributed to our shared world, to those who mothered colleagues, mentees, neighborhood kids, and anyone who needed it, to those, who remembering, to those remembering moms who are no longer with us, to those moving forward from moms who did not show love or hurt those they should have cared for. Today is a day to honor the unyielding love and care for those we call mothers, celebrating motherhood wherever we have found it and in whatever ways we have found to cultivate it. May God continue to be glorified through our prayers, through mothers, lifting mothers up and allowing them to continue to cultivate love, passion, peace, and all the beautiful displays of God that we can find in our world. God, be glorified. Raise up mothers. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for joining us for Mother's Day. And, uh...